Hello. Before I begin the podcast, I'd like to throw in a little disclaimer about what I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. In this episode, I will be reading graphic descriptions of murder, violence, sexual violence, torture, and other things that are only suitable for mature audiences. I strongly suggest that if you are under the age of 13, or if you just feel like you won't be able to handle hearing descriptions of brutal serial murders, that you go ahead and turn off the podcast now. No harm, no foul, and everyone's happy. So as always, with this kind of content, listener discretion is heavily advised. With that being said, let's jump into the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Serial Killer Countdown. This is the first ever episode of the show, and I'm your host, Jordan McCollum. Uh, this is the first podcast I've ever done, so I'm actually uh, pretty excited about it. I guess that's kind of messed up, <laughs> being excited to explore grisly details of the worst serial killers in history, but if you're listening, then I'm sure you share my sense of morbid fascination with serial killers. I don't exactly know uh, what it is about them that interests me so much, but I've always been captivated by serial killers, and more often than not, I'll find myself just wandering down a rabbit hole of murder and death and all sorts of nasty things online at like 3 a.m., and I'll look up and be, realize I have to go to work in three hours, and, you know, that's just it's just how I am sometimes, so I thought, <clears throat> what better way to share my interests than to start a podcast? And what better way to start a serial killer podcast than to talk about, in my mind and in many other people's minds, the absolute worst serial killer of all time? Or... Or is it the best serial killer of all time? Oh, uh, that's kind of messed up. Uh, maybe he's, I should say he's the most successful serial killer of all time. That's still kind of messed up. Well, he's the most prolific serial killer, at least, of all time. And his name is Luis Garavito, otherwise known as La Bestia, a.k.a. The Beast. Confirmed murders, 138 boys. Possible Number of murders based on confessions and further evidence, upwards of 300 young boys. 300 possible murders that this guy committed. That's insane. I don't think in my entire life I have ever even met 300 people. And this guy, possibly, the police force thinks, based on confessions while he was in prison and further evidence that they found he murdered upwards of 300 young boys. <clears throat> now, La Bestia wasn't actually the only nickname that was given to Luis Garavito. He also had an even more disturbing nickname that, in my opinion, was much, much worse given the context than just The Beast, and that nickname was Tribaline. And I'm probably masquerading that pronunciation, so I apologize, but... <laughs> Tribaline in English means Goofy, and he was named after the Disney character Goofy. You know, the guy with the weird voice and Mickey's best friend, and he has a dog named Pluto, and the guy that chuckles real loud, you know, that, that Goofy? Yeah, that Goofy. The reason he was nicknamed Goofy was just like the Disney character, Garavito was 
somewhat tall. He was lanky. He had sort of a hunched over posture and he had big floppy ears that really, in all honesty, did kind of make him a little bit like goofy. It's actually kind of bizarre and creepy and it's, I don't I don't like thinking about it. But honestly, this nickname was particularly disturbing to me once I started reading up about the kind of murders that Garvito commit. But uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. I kind of just wanted to start at the beginning of just who exactly Luis Garavito was. Luis Alfredo Garavito Cubillos was born in Colombia, South America in January of 1957, which kind of strikes like this weird kind of accord with me because that's the year that my dad was born. So like I involuntarily imagine like what it would be if my dad was committing these atrocities and it's just like I hate thinking about it but I can't really help it just because he was born in the same year that my dad was so he's like the same age as my dad but anyway that's something for me to talk to my therapist about I guess so anyway Garavito's home life was extremely unstable and he left home when he was around 15 years old, constantly traveling throughout the Colombian countryside to keep up with open, odd jobs and try to make what little money he could. So not much is really known about him during this period, which makes a lot of sense um, since Colombia didn't exactly keep a thorough record of its citizens. But beginning in around 1992, when Garavito is 35 years old, Young boys start disappearing from the streets of Colombia, and police and detectives start realizing that, you know, there are a lot of boys that are just kind of disappearing from the streets. And these boys ranged in age from 6 to 16 years old, but they were pretty much all street children, homeless children, didn't have any kind of families or records or anything like that, you know, caught up in kind of a gang-like lifestyle. And because of this, nobody really paid much attention to these disappearances. You know, there had been a decades-long civil war raging in Colombia at the time, and it was just commonplace, really, for people, and especially street children, to go missing. So clusters of these dead bodies would pop up all over the place, but police didn't have any kind of missing persons reports on any of them, and they couldn't identify any of the victims because none of them were in in any kind of DNA databases, and none of them had any dental records, which just showed how poor these young boys were. So it wasn't until around 1997 that the Colombian police kind of start to realize that something is amiss here and that these deaths might be being committed by one single person or entity. So, before 1997, police had really only found a few bodies of the dead children at a time. A couple here, a couple there, nothing that really pointed to these disappearances being caused by one man, or that these disappearances were connected in any way at all. That is until they started stumbling across mass graves. In these mass graves, the police found groups of bodies, not just one or two here or there. The bodies were in groups of 10, 12, 14, 15, sometimes even more than that. They were all buried in the same area, and all of the children that were murdered were naked when they had died. 
There were signs of prolonged torture on the bodies as well. Bite marks were found on the buttocks of the young boys, and there were signs of anal penetration, as well as bottles of lube found at the grave sites. So, yeah, pretty disturbing scenes for anybody to come across, let alone detectives and, you know, police. It's just terrible, terrible things that, to, that they saw there. And these findings started to spark an outrage in Colombia. And the people were really calling for the police to kind of step up their game, so to speak. They started realizing that these disappearances weren't just part of the gang life that the boys had fallen into. You know, these weren't just street children just disappearing because of their street children. Someone was systematically targeting and killing young boys all over Colombia. And the people had kind of had enough of it. And police couldn't really ignore it anymore. So they start investigating this much more heavily and a break in the case finally comes when a crime scene of three murdered young boys was found. Two of the boys were found together on the side of a hill, their hands were bound, and their bodies bore evidence of sexual abuse similar to the things that were found in the mass graves. So they kind of connected the two and they, they realized that these two young boys were probably killed by the same person that were leaving the mass graves. And a few days later, a third boy was found just a few yards away from the first two with the same M.O. as the others. The victim's necks had been brutally cut, basically to the bone, and there were massive bruises on their backs, legs, buttocks, and their genitals. Their murder weapon and a note were found at this new crime scene, and the note, amazingly, had an address written on it. And when the police arrived at the address written on the letter, they found Luis Garavito's girlfriend. And I think this really goes to show just how complacent Garavito was becoming. He had been killing young boys for possibly decades at this point, and nobody even knew there was a serial killer in the area. It feels... To me, like he just thought he'd get away with it forever. To leave behind a note with your girlfriend's address on it at a really terrible crime scene when you've just been killing young boys all over the countryside and it just screams that he either wanted to be caught or that he just didn't care anymore and he thought the police would never catch him. So the police arrive at the residence of Garavito's girlfriend, but she says she hasn't seen him in months. He's been moving around, working. She doesn't know where he is. She, has, she just has no clue what he's been up to. And so the police kind of thought that this was going to be a dead end. And, you know, maybe they could stake out the house and see if he comes back. But then Garavito's girlfriend remembers that she has a bag of his belongings in her possession, which she then hands over to the police. To the officer's complete shock, the bag of possessions includes pictures of the murdered young boys, detailed journals of the murders, tally marks representing his victims, and bills that Garavito had not yet paid. The police now knew that they had their man. They had La Bestia. They had the beast in their sights. The bills that they found had Garavito's last known address on them, which led them to his residence, but unfortunately, when the police arrived, they found the house vacant, 
with signs that Garavito had not been there in quite some time. So they believed, like his girlfriend had told them, that he was away working odd jobs or looking for work or even possibly trying to find his next victim. And since they knew that Garavito was pretty much devolving, as shown by him leaving so much evidence behind at his crimes, they knew they didn't have much time to find him before he attacked his next victim. And this would actually prove pretty prophetic because a few days later, a man attacks a young boy in the middle of town in broad daylight. And a homeless man sees this altercation and he alerts the local police. So the local police arrest this attacker and amazingly, unbeknownst to them, they had just captured the worst serial killer of all time and the most wanted man in Colombia. The sequence of events leading up to Garavito's eventual capture really paint a picture about just how much he was spiraling out of control. He leaves empty liquor bottles with his DNA all over them at crime scenes. He leaves used bottles of lube. He leaves a letter with the address of his girlfriend at a particularly brutal crime scene, as well as glasses with prescriptions in them that can be used to track him very specifically because those glasses only have, have a prescription in them that only are used by people with a very specific condition. So he ends up just completely abandoning all pretense of secrecy in his attacks, and he attacks a child in the middle of the day, broad daylight where anyone can see him, and this is ultimately how he's captured. And it's just really fascinating to me. I really believe that if that he had just gotten away with it for so long that he just either he just never thought he'd ever be caught. He thought nobody cared anymore, so he could just do whatever he wanted. He he was that narcissistic, you know, or he just couldn't be satisfied anymore with his usual murders, his normal MO, so he just escalated everything you know, like that. And it's really fascinating to me. So he's in jail, and in the process of interrogating him about the young boy he attacked in broad daylight, the detectives start to get the feeling that this is the man they've been looking for for the La Bestia murders. So they attempt to get him to confess for those killings as well, but he constantly proclaims his innocence. When they describe the La Bestia murders to him, he breaks down in tears because he's so upset at how brutal they are. And, you know, he's really trying to get them to, to think that he's innocent here. And they realize, the police realize that they're going to have to get more evidence linking Garavito to the killings. They're going to have to get more than a confession from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So they know that they have a pair of eyeglasses in their possession that can only be used by people that have a very specific condition. They know they have a lot of DNA that was left behind at the crime scenes. So these two facts form the basis of the police's plan to prove that Garavito is La Bestia. To alleviate Garavito's suspicion and to avoid having him lie about his eyesight, the police schedule a mandatory eye exam for the entire prison where Garavito is being held. This proves that Garavito is afflicted by the very unique condition for which the glasses that were found at the crime scene were used. Additionally, while Garavito is out of his cell for the eye exam, the police gather DNA from his cell and living area, which when they test it, comes back as a perfect match for all of the DNA that was found at the mass graves and pretty much every other scene of the murders. 
This new evidence, as well as the bag of possessions given to the police by Garavito's girlfriend, proves without a shadow of a doubt that Garavito was La Bestia. So because of this, Garavito pretty much realizes that his back is against the wall here. There's no lying his way out of this anymore. There's no proclaiming that he's innocent. There's no fake breaking down in tears because of the how brutal the murder sound to him. I mean, the police have him dead to rights. So he ends up confessing to 140 murders of young boys throughout Colombia. And now, I kind of want to circle back to Garavito's other nickname, Tribaline, a.k.a. Goofy. This is the nickname given to him by the people who lived in his hometown. Can you imagine giving someone a harmless nickname based on a Disney character and then finding out that this guy has been murdering children? Like, Disney is supposed to be the most magical, kid-friendly thing that there is, and this guy who is known to look like a Disney character is actually the most prolific serial killer of children in history. It just disturbed me so much and just kind of gave me the chills a little bit. But anyway, during Garavito's confessions to the police, he also explains his modus operandi. And what the police came to learn about Garavito's methods of preying on young boys was that his targets were generally between 6 and 16 years old. All of the boys were either homeless, peasants, or orphans. He would approach the boys when they were alone in the countryside or sometimes brazenly approach them in crowded streets where the chaos of the crowds was almost used as a mask of some kind. He would... Lure the children away with a promise of treats or odd jobs, easy work for easy money, and he would disguise himself as different people such as a priest, a farmer, a street vendor, a drug dealer, an elderly man, a gambler. You get the idea. And these disguises also lifted suspicion from the townspeople because these were characters in the towns who most likely were offering legitimate work to young boys. And this is actually really interesting to me because when I first saw Garavito's picture, before I even started this podcast or read up about any of his crimes, I just thought that he had a very generic face. Like, I thought that he looked like a guy who could just fade into a crowd and disappear. And I don't really know how to explain it more than that, but I just thought he he kind of looked like everybody. And it makes so much sense that his main M.O. was using disguises and using the fact that he just looked very generic and really had no identifying features other than his larger-than-normal ears. So once the boys fell for his offers of treats or money, he would walk them into the countryside until they were tired and vulnerable and couldn't really fight back. He would then tie their hands and remove their clothes. Garavito would then proceed to torture, rape, and sometimes decapitate the young boys. Usually, the police find out from his confession that a boy would suffer prolonged rape and torture by having their buttocks stabbed multiple times and having sharpened objects inserted into their anus. Garavito also said he would often sever the boys' testicles and insert them into their mouths. So, obviously, this confession caused widespread outrage throughout Colombia, and Luis Garavito was found guilty on 138 counts of murder. He was charged with 172 counts of murder, found guilty on 138 counts, 
with the other counts that he wasn't technically found guilty on still under investigation. He was sentenced to 1,853 years and nine days in prison, which was the lengthiest prison sentence in Colombia's history. However, unfortunately, in Colombia, there is a law that states that the limit to how long someone can be imprisoned is 40 years. And because Garavito helped police find the bodies of the children and he drew maps and gave other evidence that helped police locate bodies of children that he murdered, his sentence, his sentence was actually further reduced to 22 years. Luis Garavito is currently held in solitary confinement 24 hours a day, and the location of the prison in which he is located has not been given to the public, as officials fear that he would be immediately killed if people knew his location or if he was given to the general population of the prison in which he is located. He is currently, as of this episode's recording, scheduled to be released from prison in 2021. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of the Serial Killer Countdown. As I said, this is the first podcast I've ever attempted doing, and just having anyone listen is amazing to me. I hope to keep producing this podcast as serial killers fascinate me, and I'm sure many of you, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram under the username SKC Podcast, all one word. That's SKC Podcast all one word on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash jordskc. That's twitter.com slash j-o-r-d-s-k-c. And that's all one word. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.